Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you might be wondering what is happening around the world when it comes to a vaccine for COVID-19. And when there is a vaccine, how does it get purchased? How does it go out to different countries? And do our actions now play a key role in that? Well, my next guest says yes, and that Canada is dropping the ball. Amir Ataran is a professor of law and medicine at the University of Ottawa and joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Uh, You've written about uh, the fact that Canada is the only Western country that has yet to purchase, to uh, show its intent to purchase a vaccine. Uh, What is is going on with that, or what is the concern about with Canada being in that position? Well, isn't it astonishing? There are seven vaccines now in the final stages of clinical testing, which is just the best news ever. I, I mean, if you'd asked me a few months ago, Could we have one vaccine in such late stage testing by this time? I would have said, I doubt it. And now we have seven of them, meaning that there probably will be a successful vaccine found sometime this winter. It's astonishing. The science has gone brilliantly. But the problem is some countries have kept up with that pace and have placed their orders already for a number of those vaccine candidates on the the hope one of them succeeds in the final stages of testing. By placing an order now, they're at the front of the queue to get vaccines supplied to them. And that's what the United States has done, the United Kingdom, Australia, and 27 countries in the European Union. There's only one country in North America or Europe that has not placed an order for vaccine and that is at the back of the line, and that's Canada. And why is that, do you think? Well, obviously, the the government has simply blown it here. Um, The science moved much faster than people were anticipating, which is great news, but the government didn't keep pace. And so what we now face is a bit of a problem um, because with all those 30 countries and more, I should say, already having placed their orders for vaccines, the first batches that are manufactured, there's already dibs on those. Those will go to someone else. And so Canadians will likely be waiting quite a bit longer than Americans to get vaccinated or Europeans because they have their orders in. They will be supplied first. They're of course, is going to be a supply crunch, just as there has been for other things like PPE during the pandemic. And we are getting our order in nearly last. Is it an issue of money that you have to put uh, a payment down, that it costs money to put an order in? Or what would the reasoning be why Canada wouldn't join that lineup? It's not money. I mean, you have to remember that the cost of this pandemic 
um, in all the bailouts and, and subsidies and so forth is over $1 billion a day to the federal government. And the cost of buying a vaccine for all Canadians is well under a billion dollars um, if you're only buying one vaccine. So it's a few hours worth of our bailout money. It's nothing, really. The problem is just a failure to plan. And the fact that the, the Trudeau government has placed several ministries in charge of this, not just the health ministry, they actually have, it seems, a smaller role than others, uh, they've placed the industry ministry mostly in charge, and they are looking at it, they're looking at the pandemic as an opportunity to help build up Canadian companies to make vaccines. Companies that have never made a vaccine in the past. So the government's strategy seems to be, let's bet on some new upstarts who have no experience making vaccines. At least they're in Canada, so we can put the maple leaf on it. And let's hope that they come up with a solution. But none of those companies are anywhere close to the final stages of testing. One of them only has just began the first stage. So this, this is not a successful strategy. But it does seem to be the government's priority to do industrial development over saving lives by vaccination. When you talk about the seven trial vaccines as well, and I think most people would be uh, amazed again at how quickly that has happened, but having seven trial vaccines that have already moved into that phase three, how does a country pick which ones, I mean, which horse you back? Do you go, do you place an order for all of them? Do you look at which one is more promising with the history of vaccines? How would you even decide in a scenario like that? Well, you know, I've explained some of this, uh, Jill, in a piece that I've written for McLean's, and it's on their website right now, mclean's.ca. Um, and what I've explained is that the seven vaccines fall into three different categories by technology. There, there's some three families of vaccines, put it that way. And it would make sense to bet on one out of each technology, one out of each family. That cuts your seven down to three. Um, and doing so isn't a blind exercise of guesswork. We do already have results from the previous stage of clinical trials, phase two it's called, and that gives us some hints about which vaccine is likely to perform better in the third and final phase where we are now. In other words, you can make some intelligent bets on this, but your point is good that maybe you do have to, to keep a few extra options open, and that's what Britain has done. The United Kingdom has invented probably the first product that will come past the finish line. It's a vaccine from Oxford University and also from AstraZeneca, a British company. And that one... Um, is British made, so the Brits do get to, to claim it's a home vaccine. But nonetheless, they have also bought five other vaccines from other countries. They are going deep on this. They are not taking any chances. And for their 66 million people, they have now purchased over 300 million doses of vaccine from any of six suppliers. They're one homegrown and the five foreign. 
it, it, it does seem uh, like a, an odd one to to do all of the other work in fighting this virus and to uh, shut down the economy, essentially, to not have that arm of it as well, doesn't it? Well, look, it's just a terrible failure. And, and you know, I know Canadians look at the United States and think, thank God we're not you know, facing this pandemic with Donald Trump and all the hideous mistakes he's making. But don't get the idea this country is handling it well. Please don't. In terms of strategic decisions, such as where's our vaccine coming from, we have behaved, our government has behaved in, I think, a magisterially negligent way. And, and not at this stage where seven vaccines are approaching the finish line to have one of them, at least two, three better in the bag is a tremendous omission. All right. Uh, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, Professor Atteran, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this and for writing the piece in McLean's. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Have a good day. This is Mornings with Simi. Women in a leadership role can still seem novel. Not so for President Trump. For decades, he has elevated women to senior positions in business and in government. That was Kellyanne Conway at the Republican National Convention speaking last night. It's expected that Ivanka Trump will be introducing President Donald Trump this evening. To talk more about what we've seen so far and what's coming up at the convention, we are now joined by Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, good morning to you. Good morning. That was Kellyanne Conway. So what, what are some of the highlights of what we've seen so far at the convention? Well, I mean, look, this has been a convention that really has been pushing two different kinds of messaging here. One, that America is a country that's in crisis and that President Trump is the law and order president, but also one of uh, that America is prosperous and great, uh, and that's because of, a, of of President Trump's leadership. So they're really trying to, trying to speak to two different groups here. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, this really has been a, a party that's trying to unify itself behind a polarizing president that oftentimes uh, even people within the party don't really... Uh, uh, stand behind, uh, but they're doing what they can to simply show that the president needs to continue going forward, uh, painting a picture of what could be a doom and gloom country under a democratic president. Uh, what do you think of the the slogan or the phrase talking about uh, bringing America all the way back? Well, I mean, look, th- th- this bringing America back, you know, what does it mean? Does it mean bringing it back to what it was under Barack Obama? Or does it mean bringing it back to what it was simply before the pandemic? It's kind of mixed in with that messaging of promises made, promises kept. It- it's it's slug, uh, 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 rather slogans and buzzwords that are simply being used to keep that uh, that base energized behind Donald Trump. Uh, that's why we're seeing such an array of, of different uh, speakers come to the podium, whether or not uh, to kind of pump up the president's personal life or his business life uh, or the legislative wins that he claims to have had. Uh, This has simply just been a a show about Donald Trump, and we'll see how he uh, kind of handles that tonight when he does his acceptance speech. Uh, There's been some criticism of the president uh, so focused on the convention right now, not really paying attention to Hurricane Laura. We're still waiting to see uh, how much damage was caused by that, Uh, the wildfires in California, some of the the big events that are happening in the country. Do you think, uh, I mean, obviously these are his supporters that are at the convention, but do you think there's any issue with him not paying attention or enough attention to what's going on? 
Look, there was criticism about that last night where you had a Category 4 storm heading to the U.S. coast for the first time in three years and President Trump, instead of going to the Situation Room, uh, he boarded a motorcade and went to the place where Mike Pence was set to give his acceptance speech, again uh, showing that the President needs to be in the spotlight and needs to be uh, a part of this convention that is really all about him, uh, and he's faced criticism now for ignoring the kind of dire situation uh, that was experienced last night in the Gulf Coast. We are hearing from advisors that the President may not give his acceptance speech tonight depending on what those damages look like he may opt to go and deal with that instead that's an announcement we're awaiting on in the next couple of hours here Uh, but at the end of the day this has been a convention that really has kind of used revisionist history to talk about three and a half years under Donald Trump it does seem and maybe just what I've been looking at this morning but it does seem like they really had this focus on what he's done for women and women in leadership and and helping women which I, I mean when you talk about a revisionist way of looking at things, has there been a a large focus on women and women under the Trump administration? Well, I mean, four of the, you know, uh, dozens or so, uh, uh, more than two dozen uh, cabinet members are, are women. Uh, he does have his daughter who is a part of the Trump administration. But at the end of the day, this is a president who has used uh, incredibly divisive rhetoric to talk about women who speak out against him. So it is a part of that mixed messaging saying that the president stands up for women while at the same time disparaging them if they say something that is negative about him. But last night, they really tried to paint the president as someone who's empathetic. Uh, his press secretary spoke of when he reached out to her after she underwent breast cancer surgery, trying to show that the president does have a softer side, that he does kind of have the backing of women and has used them strongly throughout his business leadership. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, history does speak for itself. And there are uh, solidified, you know, pieces of proof that show that the president has oftentimes not stood behind women in this country. All right. And as you said, so we should find out in the next couple of hours what's going to be happening uh, with the fallout from Hurricane Laura and whether or not he will give that speech. Yes, that's what we're expecting. If he does give that speech, it's going to be counter-programmed. Kamala Harris will also be giving a speech at the same time uh, on uh, coronavirus, uh, the pandemic, and economic recovery under Joe Biden. It's their first real opportunity here to kind of go against what the Republicans are doing at their convention. There are fireworks that are scheduled for right after the president is done speaking, but there are also a series of protests that are being organized for outside of the White House. So this could be an incredibly contentious night here in Washington while the president is speaking. All right, Reggie, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington. This is Mornings with Simi. Continuing to talk about BC's back-to-school plan, a technical briefing and news conference on that yesterday. The Education Minister is going to join us on this program a bit later on this morning. But while we talk about that, we are also hearing from a local parent who is launching legal action because of the provincial plan and because of what the province is doing. All 60 public school districts have posted their detailed restart plans online. So parents and families can continue to prepare and support their children for a safe return to the classroom. So that was Rob Fleming speaking yesterday. Let's bring in Bernard Trest, a White Rock dad, and he is one of the dads behind this legal action. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me regarding this. Uh, So what specifically is it that that prompted you to, to take legal action? Well, we found that the back-to-school plan was announced by our government on July 29th is fundamentally flawed. Uh, Parents, teachers, uh, the BCTF, even the official opposition parties here in D.C., we've been pleading with our government to listen to the facts and the science, which they are ignoring, and we've been asking them to introduce common-sense safety measures that are being done in other provinces, yet have not been done here. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau 
was recently asked by reporters if he was sending his children back to class in Ontario. Well, the Ontario plan has safety measures that go far above and beyond what we have here in B.C. He said he may not. He's not sure at this point. Um, Our plan here in B.C. does not even follow Canadian federal guidelines. That's all we're asking for in our lawsuit. Dr. Tam and our federal government have released guidelines. All the science and data were looked at by them. And here in B.C., all those facts, all that science, all that data is being ignored. You know, another example, there was a study that was just recently done by the mathematics of, of uh, mathematics department, the faculty of math at Waterloo University. They concluded that normal class sizes could result in five times more COVID-19 cases in students and, of course, teachers. Well, that's what we're being asked to do to return our children, use them as guinea pigs, and return them to normal class sizes with no proper physical distancing, no mask mandate in classrooms, and the virtual learning option that Fleming and our government keeps referring to, school boards simply do not have the capacity or the funding to do it. Uh, distributed learning models right now, there's a, there are some, but they're waiting lists for them. We have no options as parents. This legal challenge was our only option. It's normally up to our government to keep us safe, to keep parents safe, grandparents safe. They haven't thought of any of this. How are children that live with their grandparents supposed to come home after being in cohorts up to 120 kids? We know the science is there. It's simply not safe. And what I would say is, I know you have Fleming coming up next. If he feels that this plan is safe, if Fleming, Morgan, Dixon, Henry feel this plan is safe, then what we'd like to see as parents is two weeks after class starts for them to walk into a classroom, sit with the children for an hour or two, and interact with them without masks. I have a feeling this will not happen. Even Prime Minister Justin Trudeau may not send his kid back to school. What would it take then for you to feel safe sending your child back to school? A mandatory mask mandate, as was done in other provinces and other countries. Uh, we're requesting smaller cohorts and class sizes. We know the class sizes are, are going to be just far too large. Physical distancing will not be possible, and the classes do not have proper ventilation in them, many of them. The other thing that what we'd like to see is if the numbers stay low. For now, you know, we have the ability to send them in, but for now, what we'd like to see is proper virtual learning option connected to a child's classroom mandated by the province, as was done in Ontario and other jurisdictions. Um, South Korea, this is another thing we're concerned about. They, we should be looking at situations like that. In South Korea, they had similar death counts, low numbers for COVID-19 infections. They reopened. Uh, their school safety measures went above and beyond what, what were done here. They had plexiglass around students, face masks. Some of them even wearing face shields. Their cases spiked and skyrocketed once they did the reopening, and schools were partially to blame for this. These are stats and studies, again, being ignored by the D.C. government. Uh, we only have about a minute left. So what is your sure. response to the government saying the community spread is low, we've looked at this plan, and we think that this is a safe way, and, and we're confident that students can come back? I, I will go back to what I just mentioned. There have been countries that have reopened where the COVID-19 infections were low. They did not follow proper precautions and safety measures. South Korea is a prime example of this. And yet... They, South Korea actually followed proper safety measures and they had a spike in cases. We're not even following that. So I can only imagine what's going to happen with our kids and with all of us here in D.C. It's just it, they're, they're putting us all in danger. Uh, the legal action then, I imagine, is going to continue going forward unless there's some big change? It will. Yes, correct. Um, well, as I said, we, we just, we're, all we're asking for is that the safety measures 
that our federal government is recommending be implemented, and our BC government is ignoring that. All right, Bernard, we'll have to leave it there for today, but thanks so much for coming on the program. Appreciate it. Thank you again for your time. All right, Bernard Trust is a White Rock dad, one of the parents behind that legal action. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there are still a lot of questions, even though we are starting to get a better idea of what school returning will look like when kids are back in classrooms on September 10th. In Burnaby, the plan was released, and it's similar to what we're seeing from other districts with the return of kindergarten through grade nine, a return to classes with maximum learning group sizes of 60 students, students in grades 10 to 12, a class attending classes, one class in school daily, another class delivered through a mix of online, both the online and in-class learning. Well, for more on what the plan looks like in Burnaby, Jen Mezzi joins me, vice chair of the Burnaby School Board, also former president of the BC Confederation of Parent Advisory Councils. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me this morning, Jill. Um, are you confident the plan that Burnaby has for bringing children, for bringing students back into the classrooms and, and the online learning, is it a safe one? I'm confident that um, there's enough choice in the plan that parents can choose options that they're most comfortable with. We've... Um, yeah. Oh, really yeah. kind of yeah it's it's um I think that really when you look at the plan when you look at how it's been developed it really does recognize that uh, we need an inclusive model that provides choice and the learning groups have really been um based on that those principles of equity and inclusion uh, parents really wanted to stay connected to their schools and we did a survey back in June with um and had over 5000 survey participants with staff, students, and parents. And the three main themes that came from that survey was parents and and staff wanted consistency in scheduling. They were concerned about workload and that connection piece to school. So when we look at how this plan was developed, those things are really what drove the, the, the plan. It says in in the plan that learning group sizes are often well below the allowable maximum. So that would be, I would imagine, below the provincial maximum numbers? Yes. So in our elementary schools, the learning groups are 60 or less, but they can vary. They will vary. Some schools and some classes may have a single class with just their teachers and the A's in the class, and that would be the learning group. Some may have multiple classes, for example, two classes maybe with like grades or subjects. But um, how classes and learning groups will be uh, will be how they'll look will be uh, developed at the school level and parents will be informed before they go back to school what their learning group would look like. And are parents being encouraged to even if they're hesitant about having their kids return physically to the school are they being encouraged to register their students? Uh, We will be doing a survey and asking parents what their comfort level is and whether they're going to be returning to school, whether they're looking at some of the different options so that we can help build those timetables so that parents have understand what's happening before they come to school. Uh, I think that's where when it comes to choice, we do have, I think everybody's doing their plans a little bit differently. So with us, what we have is, is four choices for parents. And really, the first choice, like you said, is is the plan of in school, basically where you've got um, where you've got you attend your local school full time for instruction with the in the learning cohorts as is on the website. With elementary school, you've got your learning cohorts. You go for your full day. All students will have a Microsoft Teams account so that they 
uh, they we can move back and forth if we move to a different stage. In secondary, the plan, as you mentioned, like we our learning cohorts at the junior program, which is for grades and nines, students will be in a learning group of 60 or fewer students and staff, and they go full days with a class in the morning and a class in the afternoon. However, sometimes some of those electives in the grade eight and nine courses may be offered in a hybrid model. And what 10, 10, 11, and 12, which is our senior program, students are arranged in a learning group of 30 or less students. So they would go full to, uh, in class with a teacher in the morning, and then in the afternoon, that they go to a class that is physically distanced with 15 or less students. And there's the space then to make sure that that distancing can take place? In the afternoon, it's a hybrid model. So the students would go for two days a week in the afternoon, and three days a week they'd be online. So that allows is that also students who are there all day in the morning and then go in the afternoon, they leave at lunchtime, so they won't be in the, the building. What are you hearing from teachers in the Burnaby District? Are they on board with the plan? Our teachers have been part of building the plan. I can't speak on behalf of the teachers. You have to talk to our, our union as well. What I can say is that with the collaboration that's happening in helping to develop the plan has been I'm so thankful for our administrators and our teachers and our parents who have been in meetings multiple times a week going through and as real it's been changing all summer long and as we try to find solutions to meet the needs that we have, it's 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 a moving target. And I think that where we are is it's we have something that's responsive and we're continuing to respond to the changes that happen all the time. Right. Uh, yeah. And I, and I know you can't speak for teachers. I was just curious if you've heard from teachers or if teachers have responded to this saying that they, they agree that this is a safe plan or they're, they're on board and, and think that this, this will work. I have heard um, from a lot of parents and teachers that they are, we, what we have done with our um, online extension of our out of school support program. One of the concerns that we had from a lot of parents was, what about my child who's immunocompromised or if I have a member of my family that is immunocompromised, what are the options if they cannot go back to school for health reasons? So for our district, provisions have been made to our an online extension of our out-of-school support program at Burnaby at Home Learning for students who are immunocompromised who have underlying medical conditions or also for those students whose family members do. And so for students, they... Um, they'd be placed in an online multi-grade classroom with students from throughout the district and assigned an online teacher. So they would be delivered the full curriculum through teams and so that they can, um, and then they would be able to go back to their, their homeschool uh, at the end um, if they needed to. And there's, I think there, there would be two places that they could come back through the year. So, uh, because that's one of the big questions, and if a student, whether it's because they're immunocompromised or have a family member, for whatever reason, they choose to stay home, do they still have their spot at their regular school if and when they choose to come back? So, for our students, whether they choose DL, which is our distributed learning, Burnaby Online, uh, whether they choose to homeschool or whether they're in this option, uh, all students will be offered their spots will be saved for September 2021 in the program of choice or in their homeschool. Uh, it's if students choose to come back during the year, uh, 
they, if there's space in their program, they can go back. If they're not, they'd be diverted for the rest of the year, but they could definitely come back for September 2021. All right. And just to, to go back, when you talked about the, the, the multi-grade online, uh, how does that work? So do you have one teacher that's now going to have to teach different grades in an online course, or how does that work? Uh, the, the details haven't been figured out. Those will be, it'll be dependent on who's in that class. But right now we do have multi-age classes. We have a lot of classes that are combined. We have like a five, six split or a, a grade one, two class. So. All right. We'll leave it there for today. Jen Meze, thank you so much for clarifying, bringing us some of the details. I know a lot of parents, a lot of teachers still have questions. So thank you so much. Yeah, I don't think that there will be one size fits all. And one thing that we are doing is for Burnaby parents, a lot of the questions will be school-based. So every school in our district will be hosting a parent meeting so that parents can ask what their classrooms are going to look like, what their cohorts are going to look like, and what their schedules would look like. I really encourage parents to come to those meetings. All right, sounds good. Uh, Jen Mezzi, thank you again so much. Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. Thanks for being with us. So we are going to talk more about education and the return to school plan a bit later on in the program. Right now, though, taking a look at the Flavel Sawmill in Port Moody. As you might have heard in the news, it is shutting its doors after being told it was looking at a huge hike in property taxes. Employees were notified on Monday that the mill cannot continue operating under the city's taxation framework, even though there is demand for the product right now. Bruce Rose works for the company that owns the mill. He's vice president of real estate with AP Group and joins us on the line now. Bruce, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for your interest. Uh, So employees were told on Monday, this seems like such a big jump. What was the mill told about what was happening with property taxes? Uh, Yes, on uh, on Monday, we, uh, we, our uh, owner and CEO had to go discuss uh, obviously with the employees uh, went there face to face to look them look them in the eye and explain to them that there was not a path forward for the mill uh, because of the property tax situation um, in uh, in in Port Moody. Even though the mill was was producing a product, there's demand for that product, and it was continuing to sell and, and operate. Uh, yes, that's correct, and and uh, uh, many of your listeners uh, are probably well aware that right now we're at a time of record uh, high lumber prices, all-time record high lumber prices, and I think this uh, puts the problem in, in perspective uh, given the current market conditions and demand. So, yes, we had been operating um, on a regular basis right up to this uh, point in time. Uh, was the case made to the city that, hey, look, with these these hikes, you're effectively shutting down an employer and uh, something that's been part of the community for years? Oh yes, no. We we have been we've been very upfront and and uh, transparent um, on the record. Uh, call it what you will. You know, over over the uh, over the years, we've participated in the um, in the city's budget processes. Um, uh, uh, every year, I guess, over for several years, and we've, um, you know, we've been we've been warning them for years that excessive, you know, hikes and ongoing property tax hikes was essentially going to end up putting uh, the jobs and and the and the mill at, at risk. And uh, we finally uh, came to the determination that there wasn't a path forward, uh, given that uh, you know for uh, for last year we ended up with a property tax increase of uh, essentially of fifty percent. And so, what what are the actual taxes? Uh, the taxes, uh, just to give you a bit of 
uh, context, we in twenty uh, in twenty eighteen we had a tax bill at the mill, um, a property tax bill of one point six million dollars, and then in May, uh, I guess in May of uh, twenty nineteen, um, when the city passed a, a bylaw and shifted the, some of the tax uh, the tax burden onto the um, industrial. Um, companies in Port Moody, our taxes uh, were increased up to close to $2.5 million. Hmm. And what has the response from the city been when they found out that because of this, the mill was going to close? Uh, The the response thus far, I can only go from, you know, some of the comments that the mayor has made that I read in in the Vancouver Sun and uh, referencing um, referencing this, but I, they have not, uh, they have not provided much in the way of comment. And uh, in terms of uh, just informing them, we had informed uh, the city manager and, uh, uh, of our decision, and we informed them uh, on Monday, and uh, then asked them that they inform the mayor and council of our of our decision to permanently close the to permanently close the mill. I understand that there are plans for this property; that there's a big re- redevelopment. What stage is that at? Uh, well, Jill, if I could go back for a minute, I think I, back in time. The there was um, an, an effort that we had been going through in conjunction with the city and the, and the community for uh, I guess for a period of time from about uh, from uh, to about 2010 up to 2018 to work on on an amendment to the official community plan um, and this w- this was focused on Port Moody's desire long stated desire from. From back in from when we we first acquired the mill back in in 2000, and shortly thereafter and, and, and through the 2000s, we had faced a number of other tax in, increases at that period of time, and it was it was becoming very clear. Although we were just focused on running a sawmill, uh, they, their their vision was to have a waterfront community. So eventually, I guess around about 20, 2009, 2010, we began to work with the community and work with the city towards their their longer term, you know, transition for you know what they wanted to have a waterfront community there. Um, they, they did not have a long term desire to have a sawmill on the site. Uh, and uh, so we had been we worked on that. We got to the OCP change amendment uh, took eight years uh, to 2018 and we, we were part of that process was a, was a was a planned a development a, a visioning I guess a master plan what would be what, what would be located on the on the site um, in we have never applied in terms of zoning to actually change or to go ahead anything with the development and uh, the you know we were supportive of the long-term plan of get to the uh, to get to a waterfront community but given it had taken eight years to get to the you know the the change to the ocp one would one had to expect it was going to take multiple years you know possibly five years eight years to get to a zoning change and something you know we had to do something with the property in the in the in the interim and we planned that something to just continue to be a sawmill um, you know our sawmill it's uh, you know we produce a lot of green sustainable building products there and um, we plan to continue to carry on to uh, carry on and uh, and uh, uh, in doing that in the interim and uh, as I said, we, we have brought up regularly that the continued increase in property taxes uh, was going to lead, um, you know, to some trouble. and We would not be able to run the sawmill. 
And uh, I, I guess that it was clearly, you know, business was clearly not wanted, obviously, by the uh, by, by the uh, elected officials and the council and the community. So, um, you know, that, that I guess that was exemplified um, with, with the large tax increase that, that we recently uh, that, that was recently handed to us. And I just like to put in perspective that at the mill, we, you know, we have an, we have an annual payroll there of roughly five million, uh, five million dollars. They're all, um, you know, fairly well paying, um, you know, 30 to 40 an hour, 40 dollar per hour, um, you know, you steel worker jobs. Um, and we're paying five million dollars in payroll and we pay two point five million dollars in property taxes. Um, something's clearly broken with the property tax system, um, you know, when the taxes amount to 50% of your payroll. Yeah, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So at this point, then, I mean, it seems like the plan to build and develop that area is is what the city wants to do, what the council wants to do, and, and losing the mill isn't that important. Uh, well, yeah, the, the, given the municipal autonomy on making decisions on taxation, I, you're right, Joel, that's, I guess that's clearly their message. Um, so in term, in terms of, you know, in terms of what is next, um, you know, for the site, um, you know, we have, as I said, we have not put any in any zoning application. Um, we, um, there has been a dramatic increase in the value of industrial properties in the lower mainland, as you're probably well aware, uh, over the last couple of three years. So we are just taking a, a, a clean sheet approach and looking at all options going forward, whether it's, uh, whether it be um, you know whether it be mixed use development, whether it be industrial, um, carry on. It is still zoned industrial, and there's also been a, a long-term um, you know p- uh, public interest. Uh, people are well aware that the that the port is very interested in the property because of its access to tidewater and its location just adjacent to uh, Pacific Coast terminals. All right, so Bruce, we'll leave it there for today, but we'll uh, continue watching what happens. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, uh, thank you, thank you for having. Me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we've been talking a lot about the return to school in the classroom, what the learning modules will look like. What about sports, though? Interschool sports, still a big question as the semester is approaching. Well, Jordan Abney is the executive director of the governing body for school athletics in this province. He's on the line with us now to talk about how things are going to unfold, what we know at this point. Thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, I know the province has also released some guidelines when it comes to school sports. What do we know so far as to what they will look like? Yeah, so the province right now, with the Ministry of Education's kind of restart education plan, has said that you know all inter-school activities will will not be happening at the start of the school year. So they, they've said that there, the ability to offer some sporting activities does exist within the school as long as they're done sort of within those educational or learning groups or cohorts. Um, so it, it, it's a pretty restrictive environment. Um, so, you know, we're, we're certainly hearing some frustration um, from our membership about, about that. But I think, you know, uh, it's a cautious approach. And I think everybody's trying to get the kids safely back into school and recognize there's a lot of concern about that. And then uh, they have left it open for uh, reevaluation, what they've termed sort of mid-fall. So um, we're, we're initiating dialogue with them about, you know, some various scenarios and plans that we have that 
um, could bring back some school sports, uh, and hopefully we will see that uh, come this fall. But at this point, uh, it's not going to be happening uh, very much at this start of the year. Are there some sports then as part of your plan that you think would be able to, to do that in a, in a safer way? Certainly. I mean, we've got 19 different sport activities and they all have varying risk profiles. And um, some of them are are certainly higher risk that we'll have, you know, we'll we'll have a tougher time getting on the field of play um, versus some that are, are, you know, fairly um, low risk. And I I think we could offer uh, quite a positive experience around the province in in various ways. And and it would be a good thing for for students to have uh, as part of their uh, educational environment. Uh, is it part of it, though? I mean, there's so much anxiety uh, in, in some cases about the return to school, being in the classrooms, wearing masks, not wearing masks. Uh, do you think if it was brought back too quickly, while it is important, if it was brought back too quickly, could that add to that anxiety? Yeah, I mean, uh, we have uh, we have to kind of understand that this, this is uncharted territory for everyone. And I think the, the ministry, you know, they, along with this, the school districts, are trying to kind of recreate a whole structure for for educational delivery and re-timetable virtually every kid in the, in the province, kind of on the fly and in, in a changing environment. So this is this is not an easy situation. And I think it's one of those things that, um, you know, it, it's important. And I think it's probably more important than a lot of people realize these, these co-curricular activities, whether it be sport and drama and music, etc. Uh, it's, a, it's a really fundamental piece of that experience. But I think it's just slightly down that list still until they can kind of I think they want to get kids back in the building, uh, make sure, you know, work out any kinks, really show that, hey, we can do this safely. I know there's been a lot of effort put into that. And then I think they'll be prepared to, I'm hopeful that they'll be prepared to say, okay, well, you know, what else can we do to make this a more normal experience? So, um, you know, I I remain cautiously optimistic that there will be some activities. Uh, We just don't have a timetable for that yet. Um, the, The bigger challenge we're having is that on the club and community side, the Ministry of Tourism, Arts and Culture has just uh, basically advanced to phase three, which is allowing uh, a lot more competition and so forth happening within that. And so a lot of these kids are participating in, in that forum and it, it's causing a lot of confusion and frustration with the discrepancy between sort of the club and community path and the school pathway. And so we're, we're trying to kind of figure out how to communicate that best. Well, and that's uh, I was going to ask you that because with the phase three of the return to sport guidelines, it does seem like on one level, exactly as you said, that is happening and it could be confusing to kids. Well, why can I play this sport here and do this here? But when I come to school, I can't. Yeah, and that's that's something that we have expressed to um, the ministry and kind of said, you know, the, the the discrepancy here is really challenging on a number of ways, and, and it has potential to have some long-term negative effects on school sport. We're talking about loss of coaches, and we know that a lot of the the clubs, and especially the sort of for-profit entities that exist out there now, will fill that void instantly. And we already know that it's happening, that there's a lot of sort of, um, I guess, aggressive marketing in terms of filling that void, knowing that school sport will likely have a slow start um, c- coming back. And, and school sport remains sort of the lowest barrier form of sport out there. Uh, it's often usually the most cheapest form, and schools would do what they can to make sure that kids can participate. Uh, 
uh, and so there's a lot of concern about that and, and just the confusion around, well, what happens here versus what happens, uh, you know, at a club. And the other thing, too, is, you know, in a club setting, you might have kids from anywhere from three up to maybe 15 different schools on a team. Mm-hmm. And so from a, a contact tracing standpoint and sort of managing um, the potential for an outbreak, it becomes a lot more difficult because now that one team is actually exposing 15 different schools. So it, there's a lot of complications to it. And I think that that discrepancy between the two is where we're, we're hearing a lot of the frustration from our membership and saying like how, how is this actually working right uh, so we're, we're trying to work work towards some solutions on that all right we'll leave it there thank you so much for your time that's jordan abney executive director of bc school sports this is mornings with simi we're gonna have thousands of classrooms with 30 students in them with 30 students in a classroom physical distancing is not possible All right, that was Terry Mooring. She is the president of the BC Teachers Federation, speaking yesterday on CKNW, talking about concerns the BCTF has with the number of students that will be in some classrooms. So she's saying the number of 30 in some, when we're being told that the average class in intermediate grades is going to be about 22 kids. But many people raising concerns that there will be classrooms with as many as 30 students and with students not required to wear masks. In in those scenarios, it will be important possible to physically distance. It's one of the questions that has been asked to the education minister several times and our education minister for BC, Rob Fleming, joins me on the line more to to, uh, talk about this more now. Thanks so much, minister, for being with us. Thanks for having me, Joe. Uh, we're hearing these concerns raised more and more by the BCTF, by individual teachers. Uh, there is now a lawsuit that has been launched over the return to school plans in this province. Why not just make masks mandatory for everybody? Well, look, we, we have uh, had a, a science-led approach to every part of government's restart plan uh, from the beginning. And uh, we have developed uh, things like mask policies in schools uh, on the advice of Dr. Bonnie Henry and the Provincial Health Office. And, uh, and the advice there is around uh, requiring them in situations where kids are outside of their uh, learning cohorts in any common areas where physical distancing isn't possible. One of the things the ministry confirmed uh, much earlier this summer was that uh, PPE, including non-medical masks, will be provided for every student, every staff member uh, to have, to use uh, in a school setting. Uh, and, uh, and I think what we're seeing in BC is a very consistent approach from other science-led governments uh, in the country uh, around, around masks. I, I think you're going to see fairly widespread mask use by, by students and staff. Um, we've also included uh, for every staff member in British Columbia, uh, things like face shields. Um, The emphasis in terms of the layers of protection really is first and foremost around uh, keeping community transmission levels low. That's the the first and best protection to keep students and staff safe in schools. Uh, Additionally, to have a controlled school site, you have to have things like frequent hand uh, hand hygiene. So we've had a resource package out there that allows uh, schools to obtain uh, additional hand washing stations, uh, hand sanitizer, well stocked with supplies. Frequency of cleaning is also another area. So we've put uh, additional funds uh, out there for districts to begin hiring more custodians to conduct uh, cleaning daily and uh, twice daily on uh, high contact services, uh, but also staying within the learning cohorts and staggering uh, recess break times, pick up and drop offs. And I think what you saw in the plans yesterday across 60 districts uh, as it relates to secondary schools in particular is a 
is a modified schedule. Uh, so I think almost 70% of districts are moving to a quarterly semester system. Some of them are even moving to uh, having one course uh, times eight over the year for five weeks at a time. That allows uh, school kids to be uh, learning in a hybrid uh, model where uh, some of it is face-to-face instruction and some of it is uh, supported uh, remotely with uh, with uh, additional uh, face-to-face instruction time. The cohorts, though, are still going to be for many people uh, and suddenly being in a much bigger group than perhaps they've been all summer since this pandemic started. Uh, I got an email just a short time ago from a teacher saying, I've taken everything out of my classroom. I'm down to just the desks and one bookshelf. The desks are one meter apart. There's no room to move. And even with the teacher's desk, back against the chalkboard saying that there's only a meter apart from the students. So this teacher is saying there should be plexiglass around teachers' desks and that more needs to be done. Well, again, look, um, uh, school districts working with their occupational health and safety teams are, are using resources that are provided for barriers where required uh, in the school system. Um, they, the, I think there's been some confusion about learning cohorts, that, that these are class sizes. The basic unit remains the classroom. And for kindergarten uh, in British Columbia, the average class size is 18 students now. It's the smallest it's been in generations. Primary school classes are typically 20 to 22 students. Even even secondary classes, grade 8 to 12, the average class size is between 22 and, uh, and 23 students. Um, and that remains the basic uh, building block for uh, where kids uh, learn and, and where they can space out in classes. Uh, you've heard from Bonnie Henry that Physical distancing should be maintained at all times where possible. And, and yes, it won't be possible in all cases. But if you're outside of your learning group, that's where you have uh, things like uh, mask policies that require them to be wear, to be to be worn. So th- those are all part of the safety features. And um, I realize that uh, parents have only had uh, 24 hours in some cases to review their uh, plans, and they can expect. Uh, and I directed yesterday that there'd be some enhanced outreach around registration this year to be able to explain and have individual conversations to see what people's family situations are about their return to school. We expect uh, districts and many of them included in, in their plans yesterday to provide additional remote learning options because there are some families out there that have different circumstances. They have an immunocompromised family member. They may have a grandparent that plays a major role as a caregiver and they may be prepared to support uh, kids uh, learning remotely for the time being as they have a more gradual reentry to uh, face-to-face instruction. Uh, so the average number, though, uh, if you're saying is 20 to 22 students, uh, that does mean there will be classes with 30 students, if that's what you're coming up with the average? Um, there could be. Uh, where there tends to be larger classes are for specialized programs. They're typically conducted in multi-purpose spaces, uh, things like uh, band and music classes, um, you know, but they're in a larger they're in a larger room. Um, the point really is that class sizes have been reduced um, significantly since we formed government from uh, major investments in hiring additional teachers, and that's that was done to support learning uh, prior to any of us imagining that we would have a pandemic like that. But uh, the point really being is that this serves us well uh, compared to other provinces which have significantly larger class sizes than British Columbia. Uh, during uh, during these pandemic times. Uh, we only have a minute left. I'm hearing from some parents in some districts saying they've been told if they don't send their kids back, they lose their spot in the school, and that's causing a lot more stress as well. Uh, what do you say to those parents? Uh, what I would say is is have an individual discussion with 
your school principal and vice principal. And, and as of yesterday, uh, we have uh, uh, worked with school districts, well, I should say for the last several weeks. Uh, but what I announced yesterday is that districts are uh, have been given the f- funding, security, and flexibility to be able to develop remote learning options. Many of them desire to keep kids connected to their local school community. That's really the goal is they want to keep uh, kids involved in a learning program attached to a bricks-and-mortar school, even if they're learning remotely. So those are the kinds of things that you're seeing uh, uh, districts uh, survey and uh, and talk one-on-one with parents about right now. They, they, need, to, they need to have an idea uh, who these families and who these kids are and be able to uh, allocate uh, teaching resources and, and configure uh, the return to school plan based on uh, those kids that are coming back for face-to-face instruction and those kids who are going to be supported by a remote learning program. In some parts of the province, it's going to be uh, enrolling kids in an existing uh, remote learning option. In other districts, it will be uh, having a, an alternate option that's developed uh, based on the circumstances and, and what families' uh, intentions are come, <clears throat> come September. All right. Uh, Minister, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Joe. That is Rob Fleming, our provincial education minister.